0: Welcome to What CEOs Talk About. Do you wonder what CEOs talk about behind closed doors? How they bring their vision to reality? How do they overcome and succeed through adversity? We share that and so much more with each episode. Now, let's get started with the show.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Martin Hunter. I am the host of What CEOs Talk About, where we translate strategy into frontline operations. Today, my guest, Josh Jeffries, Josh Jeffries, we got to practice the J's today, Uh, (laughs) who is the founder. And then we'll go through the story because there is in the story. So we'll call him managing director right now, Risk Strategies. 15 years in the making, but there's a story behind that as well. So a risk strategy has not always been. So Josh is going to take us through that. So thank you very much, uh, Josh, for being on the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: For those who are not, for those who are listening and not watching, there is a very sleepy puppy (laughs) behind Josh, just sitting in a wonderful office setting, just put head on the pillow, uh, just, Chilling. Amazing. (laughs) Josh, what is the title of the show today?
0: So the title is basically what I do day to day, which is demystifying health insurance and building alternatives to the status quo.
1: So tell us, tell us the story. Let's start with you. So let's go 15, 16 years. How did this become? Let's go just a few years before you got that aha moment saying, okay, this is what I want to do.
0: Yeah, so I was a college soccer player. I did a training program in college on selling life insurance with Northwestern Mutual. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I couldn't make any money playing soccer back then in the U.S., so I decided to sell insurance. And so I went with Northwestern Mutual. I realized I had no wealthy uh, family connections or friends to sell (laughs) life insurance to, Um, and there was an individual that had a group benefits practice and advised small companies on benefit, employee benefit Uh plans. And I said, well, that's something I can do. I can help uh, HR people spend money more intelligently. So that's how I got into the line of business.
1: Okay. And was that, is that something that you came about or is that something that were pushed in about or what, like, where were you in that timeframe? So 15 years ago, you have a family. What's going on? What's your story?
0: Yeah. So I had uh, no family at that time and I decided to move to DC because I wanted a bigger marketplace. I was in Pittsburgh at that time.
1: okay.
0: And uh, I found two guys. One was an alumni of my school. They had a secretary, maybe 600,000 in revenue. And I took a job for no money, basically a thousand dollars a month. My rent was more (laughs) than that in Arlington, Virginia. And I started to learn the business. And eventually over three years, I built their first website, um, you know, started a a fax back then. We actually sent uh, stuff through the mail and people would return it via a fax machine as a lead. And we built it up to about a $2 million business. And I decided to leave and start my own firm at that point.
1: Okay. So let's talk about that. So now you've been an employee. And so what kind of triggered that entrepreneurial, we'll call it spirit for now, but what, what kind of pushed your button to say, oh, I don't want to work for anybody else. I, I I want to work for me. What what kind of what was the thought process behind that?
0: Well, two pieces. So, one, my father worked at the Hoover company, the vacuum cleaners. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> private equity came in and moved it to El Paso, Texas from Ohio and Mexico. And I saw him and his friends lose their jobs of 20 oh plus years and bankruptcies and lots of other things and So even when I was in college, I never wanted to work for anybody else, which is why I took the insurance sales job. Um, And then when I met my wife, she had a family friend who had sold an electrical parts business that he grew from nothing in Wheeling, West Virginia to the largest distributor in the Mid-Atlantic. Single shareholders sold for hundreds of millions. And he gave me a piece of advice and said, do one thing, do it for a long time, and you'll become an expert and we'll never want for anything. And so I took that to heart and, you know, three years into the business, he saw what we did in our three years. I was yeah. there from college to 27 and he said, you need to leave and start your own firm. I'll give you the seed capital to do
1: it. <gasps> wow. Wow. That's a good, that's a good dad-in-law. <laughs> wow. Well, and,
0: uh, you know, it was only $25,000 is all I But needed that's, that's
1: even, yeah, I was going to say, what's that amount? 25K. Wow.
0: Yeah, it was you know three months of operating expense because I knew I'd be able to yeah. you know have clients that would you know sign up with me and give me cash flow from you know pretty early on.
1: So, so tell me now we, you've got the business, you're you're kind of up and running. What uh, what's your vision statement back then? What's yeah? What's triggering? How does because at at the beginning, Josh and the company are one right? It's just you can't without without the company, there's no josh, and without Josh, there's no company. So tell us about that.
0: yeah, so obviously, you're cook, chief cook bottle washer right? you do everything. <laughs> <laughs> and so um you know, the hardest part was scaling the business, but the reason I started it is because I saw what was happening in the industry with health savings accounts and the move to high deductibles and You know, I could tell it was only good for insurance carriers, not anyone else, Mm because there was no transparency in healthcare. So how are you going to shop for something that has no prices? And most people spend less than three thousand a year on healthcare. So if you put high deductibles in, you know, the insurance carrier is getting out of paying for most of the care, but they're not really discounting the premium that much. And Mm so, you know, I wanted to really just build self-insured health plans so that employers could actually control the costs. And so that's what I left on under the thesis of. IHR insurance and yes. human resources. So okay, gotcha. Helping you. businesses structure their human resources intelligently because HRIS systems were becoming mm. popular then. Yeah, and really showing them how they could just fund the healthcare themselves versus buying off-the-shelf products from the carriers.
1: And what what was the what was the biggest client trigger? So when you came up with this, I'm sure that so you had somewhat of a sales pitch what was the biggest kind of hook that these people bought into?
0: Well, I think early on, it was the fact that they saw the premium differential between the high deductible plans and the regular plans. And they they were starting to get some claims experience at that time. There was a company Mm -hmm. called Guardian that was doing self-funding back then. Uh, They don't do it anymore. And, you know, when you, start to have the costs escalate over time, Mm -hmm. CFOs started to get more and more involved. And as the CFOs got more involved, they really understood the financial mechanics behind the funding of the plans. And so it helped to assist to to move groups thinking from buying a product to really building a solution. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the beginning of challenging the status quo.
1: Now, did you learn... So, did you was your strategy solid coming into it, or did you learn from opening the door and working with these partners to building strategies?
0: Yeah, it was, I'd say, in the early days, you know, 15 years ago, it was yeah. pretty solid based on the products that existed at that time, which okay, you gotcha. don't anymore. Great West and Guardian were the two big players, neither of them are in that business anymore. Um, and then a lot of the major innovation that we'll talk about today happened, you know, post 2015.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so let's let's elevate that. So you've got. So I think it's important that we talk about leveraging resources and money. So uh, your first company, then you moved on to tell us the story about how it evolved from the first company to the second one.
0: Yeah. So it's really hard scaling when you're doing everything yourself. And yeah. I only had a staff <laughs> of two. And so I had an industry friend that introduced me to my business partner and he had a life insurance practice and a retirement practice. And it was a really nice blend with the services I offered, but he was very mature as business. His father had started the business. Oh my so goodness. I merged him with him and gave us nice scale and gave me the opportunity to go back and get my MBA while we were merging the businesses um and i did that in a fortuitous time which was january 1st 2010 oh my goodness and so march 23rd 2010 is when healthcare reform i was, was going to say minutes.
1: that was that, that was like what, like that was like what 12 i'll say 12 days but very very close like 30 days uh just before oh
0: my goodness and and so I used uh, my MBA program. I used healthcare reform as the basis for almost everything I did. And so I learned that bill inside out when most people in my industry, who are much older than I am, were spending lobbying dollars to try to fight it.
1: Mm, gotcha, gotcha. And so where did that land you from there? So okay, so you've got your second business. How did how did the transition happen?
0: Yeah, so uh, it, it was basically a merger of the two and yeah. I came I came out of that MBA program in 2012 my business and partner and I sat down and I said this is going to drive more transparency in the marketplace because there was a specific piece of legislation medical loss ratio MLR that that shows 85 cents of every dollar is spent on medical claims, 15 cents on fixed costs within a healthcare product. Wow. And so people were going to ask questions about where's that 85 cents going. Yeah. And so we decided to, you know, build a practice focusing on employers with a hundred or more employees, only building self-funded health plans to help employers access more transparency into where their dollars are going.
1: Okay. And who was that? Do you remember the first client that you pitched to, or is there existing clients that you had from your previous company? Like who was the, I guess who was the new client that you pitched at to and you and and what was the feeling behind it? Like, okay, it is because like all entrepreneurs, you're saying, okay, yeah, the math works, right? So yeah, oh wow, I found this great gap, this great situation. I've uh, analyzed the crap out of it. I've done all the math. Will anybody buy it? Right? That's the, <laughs> will anybody buy it? So do you remember when you first pitched it?
0: Yeah. So there were um, lots of large employers doing self-funding for a long time, but it never really made its way down to the middle market employers. And so, you know, Cigna had bought a company called Great West that Mm. focused on those middle market employers. And when they did that, it really opened up the marketplace for those middle market employers to access more sophisticated strategies. And so from 14 to 18, we really grew a lot of clients in that 100 to 400 employee range um, under that Cigna product, which was probably the most innovative in the market at that time. Mm -hmm. And then in 18 is when we really kind of had the aha moment and said, well, we're just renting the carrier assets and we're taking advantage of that gap in the pricing. We could really go several layers deeper than that in terms of how these services are being paid for. Because when you buy an insurance product or you go self-fund it, you're still renting the price that the PPO network is setting. Correct, yeah. And so Cigna is still setting the price for the services. They're just withdrawing the money out of your client's account to pay for it. And so that's when we started doing direct contracting with health systems and um, providers directly so that we could control the contractual terms that we're paying for the healthcare. So so basically
1: you're taking a level out of the healthcare that is, you know, uh, um what's a nice way of saying it, taking their share.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a uh, there's a phenomenal book written by Dr. Marty McCarry from Johns Hopkins called The Price We Pay that came out in 2020. And it really talks about that the pricing problem, where a majority of the money made in the marketplace by the large health insurance carriers is off the gap pricing. It's what they're charging clients versus what they're paying providers, and providers on average get less than thirty cents of every dollar. Yeah, so there's a lot of margin in what's being paid for healthcare.
1: It, it's it's unbelievable because so I, I, one of our one of our clients was BNSF Railways, and so I'm sitting down and I've I've The US Canada border. I've walked from uh St. Paul's, Minnesota, all the way to not in one sitting, but all the way to Seattle. I've walked that railroad with BNSF. Anyway, so one day I'm sitting with this guy and um he he his phone rings, so he pulls over, does a safe thing, you know, takes his phone call, and you know, he's talking outside, and I see him outside, and he's just in tears. And I go, what's going on? He's like, I had to make a choice between giving my daughter a second iv or you know did we really have to give her a second iv so i had to make the choice between her health and my financial situation i said well sure i'll, I'll listen right and he said yeah one iv is like 14 grand we've given her one already and the doctor says well she doesn't need the whole thing she needs parts of it but so, and I understand that you know there's principles that regards no interest and in all that good stuff. But when you're a father or a parent, or regardless, and you have to make a financial decision on is my daughter's health, is my wallet anyways, it's just the, the fact that you're asking the question about financials versus health with your daughter, just blew my mind. Just blew my mind. And I started researching and I see that the price of of um drugs in the U S compared to where the manufacturers are made. And you compare Cuba and and other places and you go the exact same product costs like $3,000 more. And why is that? And then you see everything that is attached or injected into that inflated price is just, and and you ask yourself why, and then you can't, and you can't answer that question because there's no proper reasoning. It's just amazing what you're doing.
0: I always explain to people that there's not a single drug manufacturer in the Fortune 50, but every one of the drug dealers is. <laughs> so Ex- Express Scripts, OptumRx, uh, CBS Caremark, they're all in the Fortune you know, 100, Fortune 50, but none of the manufacturers are because there's a price when the manufacturer creates it that they sell it to the marketplace, but then that price gets manipulated by the distributors.
1: Which is unbelievable. I mean, it's I, one, one side of me is says, okay, so you see people who see an opportunity and want to exploit that opportunity. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong in, you know, when you talk about a brand, you'll go, okay, here's a problem. Here's a consumer, here's a user. And you fit that, you fill that need, right? So you put your company where you're connecting a, a, solving a problem to a, a consumer, and that that works well. At what time do you say my 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 values are twisted? My values are are being tested. I should say not twisted, tested.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that's the exact reason why we've taken the approach of building alternatives to the status quo. Because the cost of care in the U.S. has gotten so astronomical, it's outpaced wages by so much. And medical bankruptcies are half of the bankruptcies in the United States. There had to be a better alternative of how to pay for health care versus just buying an insurance product. And so that's really what drove me to create what, what we've created in the direct contracting space is the providers want to provide the best care possible. And many times they don't even know the price that's being charged for their services. And so for us to go direct to providers and be able to provide faster Mm -hmm. payment terms at a more reasonable um, provider-patient relationship, because there's not as many pre-certifications and there's not as much oversight, Um, it's it's reestablishing that provider-patient relationship and the trust that should exist there and just providing easier payment terms for the employer to pay the provider without filtering the dollars through Wall Street. So it it relocalizes the economy in the payer-provider-patient relationship. And so that has a lot of value on the provider side, Mm -hmm. but also on the employer side because they can save money in what they're paying for claims and in turn provide better benefits with lesser deductibles to their employees.
1: Well, exactly. It has so many positive or enabling business enabling benefits, right? Business enabling, meaning that, so the provider himself pays less or gets, doesn't, I mean, when you get charged a lot of money, you don't look at the provider, you look at, at the practitioner and go, holy shit, I paid a lot of money for that, right? And so you're, you're shooting the messenger. The person that who's provided the services is not necessarily the one exploiting that that financial situation. So I, I agree with you also that it provides a, a a solid or an improvement of the relationship between who the service provider is, regardless to um, the user and or consumer customer in this case.
0: The, yeah, it's always it's always surprising to me when people call Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna the payers, because most of the non-government business in America is self-funded employers yeah and the employers are the ones actually paying it they're filtering the dollars through those entities Mm -hmm. but it's the employers that are paying those claims
1: and and the employer when you i mean i i deal with a lot of businesses and when you look at the overhead that's associated with you know when when you have to start giving benefits to an organization you've got some velocity you've got some growth but I've been with a lot of entrepreneurs and CEOs and founders that go, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if I want to grow bigger because if I add one more person, here's, you know, all the liability that's attached to it. So now you're stifling the economy by putting these big kind of overhead expenses on small business. And that just sucks because you're, 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 you're stifling the economy. That's all you're doing. And people don't understand the benefit. Yeah, everybody wants to be bought out and everybody wants to be a big deal. They realize that the backbone of any economy is the transactions that happens between people who trust each other. And that trust is done by coffee shop to, you know, I, a carpenter that stops at the, co- at the coffee shop and says, hey, Susie, how you doing? I'm good, Mike. Thank you. How are you doing? How's your son playing baseball? That's, where, that's what the economy is based off of that partnership. And I love how you've, regardless of how much money companies are saving, you're bringing the, the doctor back to what the doctor should be, knowing who Martin is, knowing who Josh is knowing about my kids, I think that that is a lovely, lovely just cause. That's just and it's a byproduct of what you're doing, saving money as well. So it's yeah. just a full circle.
0: And we hope, yeah, one of my hopes is long term, you know, all the offshoring that took place over the last 15 years, the call centers overseas, mm-hmm. you know, it's all done for capital expense of, of lesser overhead. Yeah. The hope is that 30% of a US wage is benefits in the US. And if Mm -hmm. we can drop that down to 15 or 20, we might be able to onshore a lot of those positions to the the Midwest and the less populated states that have lower cost of capital and have it be just as competitive with offshoring it to India or Singapore or somewhere else. And so we're kind of seeing that we have a a very large um, collections practice within uh, risk strategies. And so we've had some conversations with some of those large collections firms. And you know through the direct contracting strategies and lowering the overhead costs related to having us based employees it's starting to neutralize the advantages of offshoring
1: there's um i know that canada did thing with the their irs the cra canadian revenue agency is the east coast of canada was the economy has been dwindling right there's not much it's it's really sad kind of like uh, east, east coast of us and so, what the government for for once did well is move all of their call centers to the east coast. Lots of them are bilingual as well, so they speak French. Uh, so they've they've moved them to the east coast. Price of living a house compared to the west coast is you know a quarter of the price. So therefore, they've leveraged. They've done that really well into in balance things out. Because I'm with you. I mean call centers and and even now you look at and I I'm guilty of it too. Hey, I need my website done. Oh, let me go on Fiverr. Let me go on Upwork. Let me see who I can hire from Kazakhstan. That's going to cost me 6 bucks instead of 79 bucks here. Um so we're all guilty of that, but at a certain point there's there's a value that the business morality, I think, kicks in in certain things where it shouldn't money should not come before somebody's health and, and making a decision about a loved one. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm one of the uh, there's a lot of
0: articles right now in the US about the new Alzheimer's drug that was just approved by um, FDA and uh, the cost and expense of it and You know, when you start to look at medical bankruptcies in the US, you know, there was an article that was published uh, about VCU in Virginia, which is a Mm -hmm. uh, government uh, hospital system that had the most medical uh, lawsuits for outstanding balance bills. Um, And you had some university hospitals in Virginia that were, they're listed as well, and how they've stopped those practices as recently as the last one to two years. You know, I think those are all positive movements that are part of a chain of events of transparency legislation that was brought under the last three to four years that are becoming released between now and 2024, where you've got hospital transparency pricing that is in place today, payer transparency in the U.S. that will come next year, and then eventually by 2024, consumers will have an advanced explanation of the price for the service they're going to have before they actually go for the service. And so I think all those trends are going to accelerate our direct contracting strategies nationally, and it's going to make more and more employers think about where are these dollars going. And you know, my personal um, vendetta on, on the industry <laughs> is that you look at 401ks in the United States, and you know, when we first moved to 401ks, there were these extravagant fees inside 401k mm-hmm. programs. And we had Sarbanes-Oxley, and now you can buy an index fund for three basis points. And healthcare is governed by the same law, ERISA, but it's not held to the same standard as 401k plans.
1: I did not know that.
0: And the price gouging that happens between the negotiated rate and what's actually paid to the provider and what's retained inside the PPO networks is, in my opinion, no different than a 401k mutual fund. True. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. That's a great
1: Which. Which country of your knowledge does it well? Which, or it couldn't. It doesn't have to be a country. It could be an industry as well. It could say, okay, what do you envision the U.S. healthcare? I don't want to say system because it's a little bit too broad for that. But to say what, where is what does good look like, and who does good right now? And it could be in. It it doesn't have to be in healthcare of a different organization. It could be like this. I don't know the the. uh, the farmers pharma- not pharmaceutical let's say the the agriculture system of this state does that well and this is what we should look like like it's twofold it's two question if there is a country that you feel does healthcare well which one is it and why and second thing what do you see as good looking like as a win for you and your just cause when you're done 10 years from now you're going oh i made a dent because this happened
0: yeah, I think everybody always goes to um, access and, and cost, right? But quality is an unequivocal mm. aspect of health care. And Correct. people from all over the world travel to the U.S. to go to Cleveland I Clinic agree. and Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic. And so some of the best care is provided here in the U.S. Pricing is a problem. Yeah. And so I think access to care, you look at your country in, mm. in Canada or the U.K. or Australia and Germany, I think those are all great um, examples of access to care. But the U.S. is a very, very large country. And so to compare them to those countries is is not fair. I agree. And so, you know, where where I think, I think the 401k industry and the securities industry, which again is regulated by ERISA, it's the same rules. They've just taken the path that has not happened yet in healthcare. Gotcha. I mean, you know, today in the U.S., you can be assured that the fees within your retirement plan, your 401k plan. Are disclosed. Correct. They're transparent. Right. Um, advisory fees are generally flat fees at this point, and so I think you'll see those things hit healthcare over time. and And the workforce has just changed. Mm-hmm. You know, people are working from home. They're knowledge workers. They'll have twenty employers during their lifetime. You know, my dad's generation of working at the Hoover Company oh, for twenty five yeah. years it just doesn't happen anymore. I agreed. So I think a, a system where you have a benefit structure that is a community-based structure, almost not like, but think of Facebook or groups yeah. like that. You've got a benefit package that you take with you from employer to employer to employer. Your safety net shouldn't have to change just because your job changed. I oh. so, so I see a tax environment where your employer pays you a pre-tax and a post-tax income. And that pre-tax income you buy your benefit package with and you take it with you from employer to employer. And so you're really shopping culture and post-tax pay and not so much the benefit programs. I do think large employers in the U.S. will always run their own benefit programs. Yeah, of course, yeah. They're actuarially sound. They're large enough that they can have an impact on outcomes and costs. Mm-hmm. But for most of the mom and pop businesses and the middle market employers who will never be large enough to control their costs in the same manner, they should have a marketplace that's more transparent. Where they can just pay post-tax, pre-tax income, and let the employee control their benefit package and, and take it with them throughout their working career.
1: So demand drives most market decisions. Where can you leverage demand? Who's the consumer that will the like? Who is purchasing these? The companies and the small mom and pop shop, when will they be able with what methodology or what can we arm them with to be able to influence policy?
0: Direct contracting. And Direct employers contract- are the largest purchasers of healthcare in America. And they've empowered, it's, think about this. Businesses in America, they want to control the price of what they pay for something the contractual terms of whatever they're engaging in and the data that is involved with that transaction. Those are the three things you want to control in all business relationships. Correct. Healthcare is the only multi-million dollar corporate expense where they throw all of that out the window. It's so true. They don't control the contract terms. The carrier does. They don't control the pricing. The carrier does. And they don't control the data in most instances. The carrier provides the data that they're comfortable carrying. And if you ask for additional data, they make you sign NDAs because they view it as their data because it's going through their network. That is so true. That is so true. So when employers and in particular CEOs and CFOs wake up to that, and I, I, I use the Haven example as a great example, right? Haven in the US was a really highly publicized, it was... Uh, Warren Buffett and uh, Diamond from J.P. Morgan and Jeff Bezos, they yeah. the three of them combined together and created Haven, and they were going to change healthcare in America. Well, what they didn't realize is that healthcare pharmaceuticals is the number one lobby in the U.S. Number two is insurance. You know, Department of Defense is way down the list. <laughs> you know, these are the two industries that spend the most money. In, and there was a question in the last shareholder meeting at Berkshire Hathaway asked of Warren Buffett, and he said, Yeah, we didn't realize trying to change 15, 20% of GDP was, was going to be so hard. Almost <laughs> like a joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but you know, Amazon now has Amazon Cares that they a whole new business they've launched uh that they did for their own employees as part mm-hmm. of Haven, and now it's going to be a, a market-based business. And so I think what you're gonna see is items like that where employers tried to mobilize to change healthcare is Changing the thinking of CEOs and CFOs around the country. And as consolidation has run rampant in the US with private equity and healthcare practices mm-hmm. and doctors that are graduating school, they want their own practices. They don't want to work for a conglomerate.
1: Exactly.
0: And so you have these market forces that are going to drive more transparency in pricing, more direct relationships between employers and providers. And that's going to be the catalyst for change because those two entities that are driving the market but have no control today need to exert more and more demand on the marketplace.
1: It is. It, uh, it, it really brings me back to what is the fundamental relationship or the fundamental gap that you're trying to fill. Somebody is sick and you need to provide medical assistance. That is its rawest, purest form. Now, most governments and and organizations and countries see that there is a – that should be shared. Everybody should be provided with some type of – it's when we start making it a little bit more – what's the word I'm looking for – bolted on, I guess. So the center line is really everybody has access to healthcare and nobody should die in the street alone. I I get that in any country. Um, But ultimately people have taken advantage of companies wanting to do the right thing for their people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wasn't around at the time I was still in school, but when HMOs became very popular in the U S you know, the strategy was let's ensure everything. Yeah. And that was the power grab for the insurance carriers because nobody needs insurance for a sinus infection. No, it's a twenty five dollar visit, forty five dollar visit virtually and a four dollar pack to get rid of your sinus infection. But everybody buys insurance for it because HMO started that trend. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that businesses have been brainwashed into thinking that they need health insurance. You need catastrophic coverage. Correct. That's different. Yeah, you can budget and pay for regular healthcare expenses. The average employee spends less than three thousand a year on healthcare. Yet the average family premium is over twenty thousand dollars in the U.S. And so the, that's the disconnect: is you, yeah. you budget it, you budget for items you know the expense of. You buy insurance to transfer for un- catastrophic risk. You only need insurance for premature babies, cancer cases, accidents, heart attacks. You don't need it for the sinus infections.
1: Agreed. Yeah, that is. I mean, we went through in Canada, we have a bit of a different model, as as you know. But insurance is still a lot of people. I think Canada is the number one place for people purchasing insurance. They buy insurance for absolutely everything. You know, you go to the store, you go to Best Buy, and you buy a computer, you want to buy insurance. Do you want to buy? We are the most risk adverse country, I think, in the world. <laughs> and we apologize for everything sorry um <laughs> with that being said you know we went through the my wife and i because we've got staff as well so we said okay so what do we do do we really want to create an organization where we pay and you you look at this and you say okay well how much how much did we actually spend right and what happens if we had a health spending account if we took money that we've injected in there and we've looked at all the claims that you know, uh, her and I and our staff did. And we ta- we tallied it. We came at 45% of what we spent with insurance. And they've got all these clauses of, you can't spend this, you know, on, on a physio or, or acupuncture and stuff. I mean, I went through acupuncture for a sinus infection and cleared it. Now, I'm not saying that modern medicine does not have its place. But if you go to France, we lived in Europe for a long time the first thing that the doctor would say, uh, do you smoke? If you smoke, you stop smoking. Okay. Number one, number two, what do you eat? Are you drinking too much wine? Right? So (laughs) they go, what's your habits? And then let's eliminate. Then they go with homeopathic. Then they go with chemicals and then they go surgery. Right? So they, they, they turn that topsy turvy where they go, Hey, change your behaviors, change your habits, and then we'll tackle that. Right? So with that being said, there's a few times where I trusted in homeopathic medicine and, you know, Chinese medicine and it's worked. So why go into chemicals if you don't have to, right? Now, go the opposite, there's a pandemic. You know, people have paid a lot of money, countries have paid a lot of money to put research behind these COVID shots. Don't be a moron do what is right for the world. Yes. Is it not tested? Yes. Look at the people, the millions of people, billion of people that have been injected. Let's, okay, come on. It's not the end of the world. So, you know, I see both sides of the story. So like use, apply common sense to what that is and not, I'm going in circles to say insurance is not the end all be all to everything. (laughs) Just because you have insurance doesn't mean you won't pay.
0: And it's a great insight because there's a movement in the U.S. back to primary care. Yes. So the U.S. system is based on treating diseases. That's how we got the opioid epidemic here in the U.S. Yeah. Is that, oh, well, take, take this opioid for yeah. what you determine what your pain level is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we'll give you this opioid that's massively addictive and expensive to treat that. And because everything's about treating the disease, not the behaviors that lead to it. Correct. And so, what you just described in in Europe is what is starting to happen again in the U.S. Is let's reestablish that firm, solid primary care relationship where they aren't fee for service and seeing someone every ten minutes. They're taking time to learn about: Do you smoke? What do you eat? Are there environmental factors that are leading you to these comorbid conditions that you're creating?
1: Yeah, uh, it's not. Uh it's not fair for somebody who is healthy and, and I shouldn't say it like that. Somebody who understands temperance, meaning that it's not, I love, I've worked in Mississippi, New Orleans. I've worked down in the South fried green tomatoes, fried chicken, mac and cheese. I mean, that that's, I mean, soul food is delicious. Three times a day, (laughs) sweet tea, three times a day, maybe not. So people who have tempered and and say, okay, let me take this with limitation and and appreciate that instead of indulging in over, I mean, obesity across the world is just absolutely because we feel the need to fulfill our, our right and I, I, and again, I'm not blaming the U.S. i S I'm blaming the entire world and saying, okay, well, I'm entitled to have meat. I eat meat, but I, I do it in a reasonable manner. It's just being balanced of everything. It's like politics, one extreme or the other is not good. Democracy was based on discussion. And I think that that is, I'm glad to see that the U S is coming up with, and that you're contributing to that as well. Cause I mean, how much do you save a company on average? So come somebody comes and sees Josh and, and your company and they go, hey, can you help us?
0: Yeah. So just changing their funding strategy from buying a product to building, building it themselves saves on average about 15 to 20%. But if they do the more advanced strategies where they're doing direct contracting, you know, 30 plus percent. Um, so it's substantial amount of money. Of gross revenue? Um, uh, well, of their gross expense. Of their on, gross. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had a client last year that was spending about 18 million. We took their spend down to 10 and they reduced the premiums for their dependence on their plan by 20% year over year because they were just spending that much less on a per claim basis.
1: So that's more money to go in innovation, more money to go. So let me back that back bus up. Number one, better healthcare, better relationship with the health practitioner, I'm assuming, right? More money to play around to be more innovative with, less stress associated with the staff and the employees to saying, well, can I afford this? Can I not afford this? The fact that the organization is investing in the organization brings morale, therefore brings more productivity, brings more culture, brings more, less employee turnaround. I mean, just by that simple transaction, I can count eight off the top of my head enabling the, the company
0: at being better at what they do
1: and the people within it.
0: And most of the time we're building these plans with no deductible. So we want the provider to get paid quickly from the health yeah. plan because we want to help their, the amount of money spent on revenue cycle consulting in the healthcare space in America is mind boggling because the carriers wait 120 days sometimes to pay the <laughs> provider. And they'll you know, have value-based contracts where on page 400, they didn't meet a metric and they'll recoup money that was paid to them you know, earlier in the year. So we try to pay within 30 days. We, we get a lower price because of it and it simplifies the plan. And what it does is it gets rid of what I call functionally uninsured people. So I have a group that I'm meeting with tomorrow that has a health plan with a $12,700 individual deductible. That is functionally
1: uninsured.
0: $12,000? $12,700 individual. The family deductible is $25,000. And their average income at this company is in the less than $50,000 a year range. I was going to say, that's
1: half the income. It's
0: functionally uninsured. And that's how bad it's gotten in some instances in the US is the the industry. So the brokers are, Mm -hmm. are, are trained to sell the insurance carrier product. And they get paid a commission to do so. Of course. And so their toolbox is literally: how much more do you want to charge the employee, or how much do you want to raise the deductibles and co-insurance? And that's your average insurance broker's toolbox to manage healthcare costs in America. It's not—I say it's not managing costs; it's just shifting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Into, between the employer and the employee. And so what we're really doing is trying to educate the advisory team within Risk Strategies, but then more globally across the. the country through an organization called Health Rosetta on how to build these plans from scratch to be able to actually bend the cost curve, change the way you pay for healthcare, and not just be limited to shifting costs within the products that exist today. And and everybody tries to demonize the carriers. And I I tend not to do that because they've built phenomenal businesses and they've come up with very innovative structures to control costs over time. Mm -hmm. They just have a duty to their shareholders to return value. And as a publicly traded company, that's their duty. And they do a great job of it. Um, you know, the returns on the healthcare, the four primary healthcare stocks are 3 to 5x what the Dow S&P 500 has returned in the last six years. So I, I joke with my clients, I say, if you sponsor a group health plan in America, you better buy their stock also. I was going to say, that. Yeah. But they're taking out of your left pocket, they're putting <laughs> back into your right.
1: <laughs> I, and, and this is where, you know, what we talked about before of... Where's the limit? You know, where's the duty to shareholders? Yeah. But ultimately, duty to your employees, like treat your employees like your clients. That, that's what I always say. If you want to have good retention, you want to have a good business model, treat your people with dignity and respect. Regardless of color, age, religion, sex, whatever, treat people how you want to be treated. And when you do that, your company will. Always be, always be profitable because you're telling your, so every human being has three needs, you know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Do I matter? Right. And so we all have some level of, of variance. So employees need that as much as your customers, your customers want to say, Hey, do you hear me? Can you see me? And and do I matter so that you can adjust your, so we're doing that with them. Why not do it with your employees? And if you do those two really well, then your benefit to your shareholders then it becomes a result of just good business ethics. And I think that that, that is where I think the there's that the fine line is crossed for values in regards to you know what you're doing for. I mean, the fishing industry, logging industry. I mean, oil and gas. We can go a, a gajillion of them, but ultimately, you know, we tolerated that and we've never said, okay, so I think it's looking for alternative as you're doing, not just complaining and saying, oh, you're a crook, you're this or that. So, okay, find a solution where the consumers can make a choice and I, the, the lovely. It's a great idea.
0: So, I've got a uh, very innovative client that I presented with down in my uh, Orlando earlier this year. Mm. So, public knowledge, I can share it. Um, they create t shirts, custom ink, and their okay. CEO is phenomenally innovative. And to your point, he has an acronym that he uses called GrowIn. And it's about growth, it's about entrepreneurship. So, treat, being an owner of the company, that's the yeah. OW, ownership, taking ownership. And then IN is innovation. And so, the, the GR is golden rule, the cool. OW is ownership. And the IN is innovation and it's their internal acronym for their employees. And so they were my, one of my first clients did direct contracting and went all in on it because of what you just described, that mantra of the golden rule, do for others what you do for yourself. And and they have those driving core values of ownership and innovation. And they wanted to be a leader in the employer space in America to say, hey, this is an alternative path. And, you know, they offer a health plan that has no deductible that costs less than $10 a month to participate. And they wanted to be able to do that for the next 10 years. And so they really have been a a key driver for the overall movement in America in this direction. And that's what it takes. It takes employers like that to show the way, to blaze the trail so that the other employers who are really controlling the marketplace, but today have zero control. Yeah, yeah. But they're funding the marketplace for them to take control back and really make it a valuable asset for their people and their shareholders.
1: I think ignorance, and and not in a bad term, like people are ignorant. They're just the, the people of not knowing what's out there as well. So, People are just used to it, right? So you go, well, yeah, I, this is what I need to do. I need to protect my employees. I, I want to give them the best that I can give and I can afford. So they go do it and they don't realize that, you know, our, our values are ignite curiosity, crystallize thinking, and concentrate action. Well, if you're not curious about everything to say, okay, well, let's look at the business and, and okay, we got healthcare, you know, health coverage and, and insurance is there something else out there? Is there a better way to do it? You know, applying the continuous improvement of plan, do, track, adjust, goes to everything. And you go, oh, wow, let me do a little bit of Google research. And then you go, oh, there's something else out there. So for those who are listening and watching, I think it's important to say, you know, don't be afraid to talk about change either, right? So it's important that you go, hey, listen, I found this this thing on this podcast. Where is that? Maybe my company can do it. And the more the people adopt it, that's how you're going to influence change. That's how, look at veganism and plant-based milk. I mean, you want to talk about an organization, the milk industry is kind of quivering because nut milk is just thundering, thundering. So share value, all of these burger joints that are popping up, that are taking on all of the you know McDonald's and Burger King and all that good stuff, right those are it's what I like seeing is this kind of back to the neighborhood kind of consumerism right let let's buy local as much as we can, and without taking away globalism, I can't there's opportunities you know, my very good friend he employs a whole bunch of people from the, the Philippines, and what he gives them in salary, which is less than what he pays in the US, just makes a full community thrive, right? With what he pays five employees, because their families are a lot bigger, he supports like 45 people. So he says, don't underst- Don't underestimate that. He says, I completely understand, you know, let's bring it logo. He says, I pay five people, and I affect 45 people, they've raised their living standards. I helped them with security, all of that. So he does cybersecurity. So it it was, the community is not just here. What I'm trying to say is, you know, trying to level it out. So we take the, you know, a better direct approach to what you're saying is that the better relationship between consumer and, and service
0: provider. Yeah, and I think it's that intellectual curiosity that you described because that's our biggest barrier is status quo. Mm. You know, I've I've been doing this 20 years if this, you know, if there was something else my advisor would have told me about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that thinking that there aren't alternatives and there's always alternatives to learn more about and to see if they could be a fit. If um, there's a so yeah i I'm like you, I drink oat milk every morning in my latte. and you know, growing up in Ohio, I would have never thought it. oh the future my goodness, I, I would be uh, drinking oat milk in a latte, but you know it's change happens.
1: I completely agree. and if you know what you've done is let's go back to to you for a sec. and you saw an opportunity to be the change. and people think, the reason why I asked that question at the first part of the interview is to say to listen to a lot of people saying Josh just didn't happen to it yeah he fell onto something and he strategized about this and you see how it's grown and evolved and there's learning components that come every single day you started your MBA you never thought that legislation and stuff was gonna you know fall and then you dove into it so it's not an all or nothing. It's a, it's a long-term process that you have to stay curious and improving and say, Hey, what are we doing to change? Right? So what is your reference material? What is, what is the one piece of material, a book, a movie, uh, a coach that has defined who you are and you always go back to you're successful in standards of you've, in business, you've grown your company. You've so well, you've gotten financing. We haven't talked about that yet of leveraging PE. And then you've also got a great family and all that good stuff. So that who, what piece of material you say, okay, now I always revert back to this. Like for me, seven habits is something that when I was younger, I, I read it, devoured it. I got like three books that I've, they're basically torn up from rereading them. What's, what's that piece of reference material for you?
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a couple of different things. So one, I think when you're young events happen that structure who you're going to be. And, you know, for me, it was that, that Hoover company event. And my parents, they lost, you know, they lost their home uh, because they had second mortgage Mm -hmm. on it to put my brother and I, you know, through school Mm -hmm. and other things. And so I think that was a very early experience that said, I don't want to rely on on an organization Mm -hmm. for my family's well-being. I want to create and and be responsible. And then, you know, I think the mentorship of uh, our family friend who had his business and said, you know, don't jump job to job for for another salary. Go Mm -hmm. into something you enjoy and really master it and, and you'll find value. And then, you know, my business partner, you know, always do the right thing. So you always do the right thing. If you do what's right for the client, you do what's right for your people, you do what's right for your family, you're not going to have problems. Things are going to work out. And so, you know, that kind of came from different perspectives all throughout. Um, But ultimately, I I feel like after 20 years in the business, I'm at a point now where I've, I've started companies, I've sold companies, I'm an angel investor in nine different healthcare related entities. I've got the perspective now to be able to look back and see those ex- mm-hmm. experiences and what really drove to where i am today
1: i i love how you said do what's right you don't have to explain what right is because inherently you know what's right and what's wrong it's just the, the values across nations is across human beings like we're getting we're getting being i i isoterical a little bit but you know what right is it you don't have to dig deep you when you've got kids, you know when they're two, and they know that they did something wrong. You didn't have to tell them; they know exactly you did something wrong. So it's it's inherent. Um, let's last question. Let because I think we 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 got so deep into it. I think that I want you mentioned before in the pre show that we wanted to talk about leveraging private equity because I think that that's the business aspect. Now we've kept, we've worked in the business, with what you do, and thank you for, let's talk about working on the business and how you've leveraged private equity.
0: Yeah. So my business partner and I sold our firm to a company called Risk Strategies, which is backed by private equity about three years ago. And what it, it what it's really taught me in business is the power of private equity. And By having that capital access and being able to build the business at a much faster pace, Mm -hmm. you can increase the impact on the marketplace at a much faster rate than you'd ever be able to invest in your own capital. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's something that I never previously had a lot of experience with. Now I've got quite a bit of it, you know, three years in and having multiple investments. And it really is a, a powerful tool. Um, And I think a lot of people think of private equity as just a financial play Mm -hmm. um, or financial engineering. But when you're building a business that impacts people and businesses in a very personal way, like we do at Risk Strategies with insurance, we're not just doing employee benefits. We do home and auto and life insurance and executive benefits and and boats and all sorts of uh, risk transfer you're really able to do it in a way that brings better products, faster to the marketplace, better outcomes, better contractual terms. And you can innovate on a much broader scale, much quicker than than you could trying to do it on your own P&L.
1: It is. And again, people are scared because there's horror stories out there, right? I lost my business. These guys came in, bought me out. I got fired, didn't get anything. But like, like Friday the 13th and and uh, what's the other one there with the claw there, uh, those are ghost stories. They've only happened once. The people don't go, yes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre really happened once, but it's been relived a thousand times over, but it's only happened ever once. So again, be curious, find out more, define, because I think what was good for you that, was assumed in the conversation is that you had a good book of sales you had a good playbook you had the right employees the right people in the right seats and you said okay it it was uh even if the opportunity came from somebody else you were ready to have that conversation and potentially do that so you say okay i'm doing my strategic planning i'm doing my annual operating plans i'm you know guy eyes on the budget cash flow is good and he said, okay, we could do a lot more. We can influence a lot more with some more cash because you can scale a lot better. So, and I don't think they took you to
0: the cleaners, did they? Yeah, no. no. and, <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the horror stories that you described were probably deals that shouldn't have happened in the first place. Agreed, and, agreed. And so, you know, I think that's a big piece of it as well is when you go into it and you've got a strategic plan of why the deal is taking place, it generally is going to work out appropriately. Um, if you don't have that and you're just doing it as a financial transaction, I think that that's where the horror stories come
1: from. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I don't, I don't. Want, yeah, 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 yeah. No. Hold on, hold on a second. Let's talk, embrace, strategize. There's two little people that think that oh well, it, it, or the opposite, right? It's all smoke and mirrors where people build their businesses to sell. And I, I think private equity firms and VCs have been stung a few times as well where they thought it was something different and uh it was not so um yeah both both sides of the story so they become a little bit more stringent and uh inquisitive on the underwriting process to make sure hey hold on a second we lost five million dollars on this one on that stung a little so (laughs) oh thank you so very much if um can somebody reach out if, if somebody listens to all this and they go, oh, wow, absolutely crazy. I want to know more. Can they reach out? Where, where can they find you?
0: Yeah. So um, I have a work email, which is just my first initial last name, jjeffries uh, at risk-strategies.com. Um, my personal email is even easier. It's jj at Oh, there
1: you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but those are probably the easiest ways to reach me.
1: Oh, fabulous. And and so uh, I forgot to mention it at the top of the show, uh, Josh has this thing for horsepower. So <laughs> um, Top Car, what do you like?
0: Uh, so I love McLaren's. Um, there's not one in the stable currently. I, I just got rid of uh, a 720S for a Ferrari Pista. Um, it actually just got delivered yesterday, the Pista. Oh, my. So, uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about it. It's a track specific vehicle. Um, and I like going to the track and so that should keep us, keep us held over for a while.
1: And and you're not just a track kind of guy. You were saying in the pre-show that you like to, to live in the dirt as well. So you went up and, and rode the Jeep and all that good stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We have uh Jeep 392, which of course is a, a 470 horsepower jeep, <laughs> doing some sand sand dunes over the weekend. And we'll, uh, we, we, we like doing rocks uh, whenever we can get around them as well. It's oh, harder to find okay. on the East Coast than the West Coast of oh. the U.S. I agreed,
1: agreed, agreed. Well, if you want to get a hold of Josh for risk strategy, if you want to learn more about what he does and how he can influence your company, please go ahead and reach out. His contact details are below and or if you just want to talk because you've got a McLaren that you want to get rid of he might just be interested in unless it's so funny cuz i bought a, a lego McLaren for my boy uh, about 3 weeks ago so we're talking about cars and says look at this one dad so uh i can't afford a McLaren just yet so but we bought a lego one
0: <laughs> well it's funny you say that i think that's a great inspiration and whenever i do the car shows i always leave my doors open so that all the kids can get inside oh okay. I think it's super important for the kids to be able to, you know, dream a little bit. And who knows, maybe it'll inspire one of them to, to take what I've done in healthcare and to the next level.
1: Uh, oh, awesome. Well, thank you very, very much for being on the show. Truly appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to uh, meet you. And I hope that your audience finds a lot of value and, and hopefully some inspiration on uh, what's you know, possible um, with healthcare uh, in the U.S. and beyond.
1: Fabulous. Thank you very much. So with that said, my name is Martin Hunter. I'm the host of What CEOs Talk About, where we translate a strategy into frontline operations. Thank you, everybody.
0: Thanks for tuning in to What CEOs Talk About. Make sure to click subscribe to get notified about future episodes or check us out at www.whatceostalkabout.com.